Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. And with me right now on the podcast, I have a man, if you've listened to TV, radio, video games within the past four decades, you know this man's work, and we're going to get into his career and then some, and when I was a college radio DJ, I took inspiration in one of his famous IDs for a little radio station that you might know, WQHT New York, Hot 97. I have the one, the only Mr. Rick Allen with me. Rick, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. I, thank you for even having an interest in what the heck I do, because I, I I always been a behind the scenes guy. and. Uh, so I don't get the, the the glory that the DJs and the air personalities got, but I just love what I do, and so it's like to have some recognition. Uh, believe me, it, uh, it it is it is humbling. Yes, sir. And for those of us who love radio, we know all about who does the imaging and does the behind the scenes work that makes everybody else look good. So you deserve every little bit of flowers that you're getting today on this podcast. Well, thank you, thank you. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. What made you want to get into the radio business? And did you always have an aspiration to be behind the scenes or on air at first and then later found out behind the scenes was more my cup of tea? Well, I mean, it was an interesting kind of uh, path into that. And it actually started out, I've been actually, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about it, but I've, uh, I've drew my first professional paycheck for audio when I was 15 years old and um, I'm 61 and I haven't done anything but audio my whole life. So it's, uh, it's, it's the only thing I'm qualified for other than that is I think to say, hi, welcome to Walmart. <laughs> so so I, I've got to keep my day gig, man. Um, but what happened was I started out as a radio DJ um, when I was, when I was 15. And one of the things I discovered was when you were live on the air, because back then there wasn't this voice tracking, it was, it was live radio. And I found that I wasn't quite as slick and skilled live that, that I wanted to be. And so when you make mistakes live on the air as a DJ, uh, everybody heard it and it was kind of embarrassing. So when I got into the production studio and started working with, with tape and, and starting being able to, if I made a mistake, I erased it, I fixed it. So nobody ever heard the product until it was polished. And that's what I really, I, I loved doing that. And I loved getting people's attention through sound. Um, those those things that go on between the the records sweepers and, and the ids um, really were i was always looking for interesting sounds um, and that's what kind of started it through high school um, and then i put myself through college working at a radio station uh, as their production director and uh, and continued to enjoy kind of sculpting that craft then after i graduated from college ended up in dallas texas at um back in the day when the sung jingles, the singing jingles, the, you know, the WABC kind of things. Uh, I worked for TM Productions, which was one of the big, huge jingle houses back in the day. Um, and then, then kind of slowly worked back into it um, and, and kept, kept kind of trying new things and experimenting, trying to keep on the cutting edge. And that's, that's where it kind of led me to New York City and, and hot. Mm, now you mentioned TM out of Dallas. Now was Jam's arrival jingle house? Yes, um, but but very friendly rivalry. It's kind of interesting. John Wolford owns Jam, and the singers that sang at Jam, they would sing in the afternoon at Jam, and they would sing in the morning at TM. It would be the same independent uh, jingle singers. So the interesting thing is, you know, it, that's why all those jingles sounded somewhat familiar uh, and similar. It's because there were a lot of those were the same jingle singers on those packages. Wow, I never knew that because I always thought that the companies had their own in-house singers. So how long would it take for the rival companies to knock out a jingle package depending on how many affiliates you have signing up to use a particular package? That's well, what, what the concept back in the day for that was usually, and it's still this kind of same kind of concept, they would take a little bit of a loss on the custom package on creating it if they, would, if they found a big station that would want to have something done, for instance, um, WABC in, in New York, WLS in Chicago, uh, KISS FM in LA, uh, those kind of stations were big stations back then. So they would, they would come in and want a custom package for, built from scratch. That would take 
file because you'd have to get the you'd have to get the rhythm section in. You'd have to you know, it would have to be written and approved to begin with. The rhythm section would come in, then the horn section, if there were violins or anything involved there, then the singers would come in and sing the final package. Where the companies like this tend to make their money was syndicating it, which is taking that package, those music beds, the music and this and the effects, and having the jingle singers come in and all you'd have to do is just have the jingle singers sing the new call letters or the new radio station name. And they could do that for stations all across the country at a fairly reasonable rate because they only had to pay the singers at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, was it a separate rate if the DJs wanted their own customized jingles? Funny thing, the DJs in, the, in, the, in those days, really the radio station would usually pick up the tab on those. Um, they, they would have the, the DJs uh, custom sing, uh, their name custom sang, um, and, they, and the, the station would pay for it. It wasn't until later when we got into the economic times where things got a little tight and the stations didn't want to pay for those kind of things that the local DJs would, would pay for their own jock shouts or their own sweepers and that sort of thing. Uh, that, that was, that's fairly, well, I shouldn't say fairly new. It's probably been going on for 20 years, but um, that wasn't something that was going on back in the, the, uh, the early eighties and, and late eighties. Right. And I'm sure there was probably a lot of deals made like, Hey, do this for us and we'll trade you airtime or some other things for that brokering deals. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's where, that's where my business really took off after Hot 97, which was um, I had a, a package out called Continuous Climax, which was an imaging. It was it was a pre-produced package that was always updated that was for radio stations to use all across the country to make their product sound as best as they can. And that was actually the, the, the term is barter. And it was uh, we, we ended up the station would get it for free if they would agree to play a, a one minute uh, advertisement every day that we could then turn around and sell to a national advertiser. So everybody kind of, it was a win-win for everybody. Right. And if you know radio like I do, it would either be in the form of a commercial or DJ would come on and do a live read, something like this. This product is brought to you by Rick Allen Creative Services for all your imaging, ID, jingles, and sweepers needs. Go to Rick Allen at Rick Allen Creative Services at number insert here, website insert here, and back to the music. Yep, absolutely. Right. Now, back in the 60s and the 70s, what I noticed in radio was that a lot of DJs, especially in the big union markets, didn't operate their own board. And you normally would have somebody behind the glass operating the board or the spin pots and the cart machines. Did you do any of that work before fully transitioned on the production side? No, because I, I was I came into the business right about the, the transition of that, and I didn't get to the the that still was the everyday uh, kind of routine in the large markets because of the unions. Um, you know, in New York, Chicago, and L.A., a lot of those DJs didn't run their own board; uh, they had an engineer that would run it for them. But by the time I got into the business uh, and made it to the larger markets, that was pretty much. Uh, at, at, for instance, at Hot 97, the DJs ran their own board. There wasn't any union engineer. Because it's, I mean, when you're running a very tight radio show, think about how difficult it is for that timing. There was a, almost a, it was almost like a marriage between the engineer and the DJ because he'd have to, or he or she would have to, you know, point their finger like, okay, you know, hit that, hit that next button so the music starts here or, the, or this jingle starts here or that sort of thing. So there was a, to run that really exciting top 40, very tight production uh, was not an easy thing to do with two people. And, uh, and it's like people like Broadway, Bill Lee, that guy ran such a tight board on his own that, that I think it, it uh, if I, if I remember right, there were times where he ran it, it was in a union shop and he did not run his own board. But for the most part, he, his, his show just, just blossomed, I think was amazing when he was running his own board. Right. I definitely agree because radio, for those of you that are uninitiated, it is a science to it because you have to be tight with your board. You have to know your clock, know when to get, get in and out of your breaks, know your stop sets. And whatever you do, do not talk over the intro of a record. Be sure to hit that post. Absolutely. And, and, and then it wasn't computerized. I mean, these days you've got voice tracking, which the DJs record their, their, uh, their, their banter, um, you know, while the, at, long before the music is ever played before it's, it's not live. Um, but back when it was live, you had to, I mean, I, I remember 
uh, you know, some of the DJs at Hot would be interviewing a listener, getting a request, you know, having them ask for a record or something. And they'd be preparing that tape for a playback as that last song was fading out. They'd be getting everything ready and put their headphones on. And there was it was breathtaking how, how fast paced the, the environment was there. Yeah, because I was telling a lot of people, I probably wouldn't have had a steady hand to splice edit those reel to reels and on the editing block because you really had to have the hands of steel and knew exactly where to mark that grease pencil because if you marked the wrong spot there was no oh let me undo this edit you were screwed if you edit the wrong thing yeah the splice tape. I mean, in, in the world of digital audio that we have now it's like you just you, you you hit a key and you undo it and you can start over again there it was you, you would physically splice the tape together. If you wanted to put it back together, you had to take it apart, put it back together. And I think I'll show you, I can't, I don't know if you'd be able to see it, but there's a little bit of my finger missing right about there. That's from a razor blade when I was cutting tape with a razor blade and just sliced through my finger. Um, and I only did that once. That was a, that was a lesson learned, but, uh, oh, man. <laughs> but I, it got to the point where when it came to analog tape, um, which was the way we recorded things and you'd have to physically splice things, um, I could I could actually I'd be able to carry on a conversation with you while while moving the, the reel to reel around and listening with it, with the back of my mind, hearing something and, and mark it. And I, I could do an entire I could I could edit through an entire piece without ever really having to closely pay attention. It was almost second nature, which was yeah. fun. Yeah, and the crazy thing about those early days in radio with the technology not being there, a lot of the mix show DJs, they would do their shows on reel-to-reels and they would bring it into the studio, load it up and play it. But just the creativity they really had to do where you had all of these splice tape edits all in the reel-to-reel and then to really just be creative because you had to make do with what you had. With the, the, the mixers, the, the mix DJs and, and the, the people that do uh, special edits at Hot was amazing because back in the days of analog tape, literally, because I don't know if, 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 if the, your, your viewers and listeners kind of remember the analog days, but they, you, they're little pieces of, of white or blue tape that you would use to splice two pieces of analog tape together. It's like scotch tape. And um, there were times when the guys would bring in a new edit for a, for a Hot Mix and you'd put it on the tape machine and it would go by and it, there were just, you know, they'd, they'd do 16, 16 notes edits or, 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 or even more and the edits were this big and it would just be like edit, 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 edit. And it was just amazing to, to visually watch that go by on the tape machine. You wouldn't hear it because the edits were so good, but it was, it was just amazing the talent that those guys had. And before FM really took hold for music, AM was the dominant dial in which music was on. And a lot of AM stations, a lot of them were daytime stations where they'll be on during the day. And then when it came sundown, power down at night to protect your big stations in other markets. And that's why you had stations like WLS, WABC out of New York had a national reach because when those smaller stations signed off, when it was sundown, it expanded their demo and their listening audience. It also influenced, it almost became a, uh, a style nationally because it influenced what everybody else listened to. I mean, growing up, I listened to WLS at night. Uh, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I grew up in the Midwest. And I grew up listening to WLS all the time because it was the big 50,000 watt AM station. And I listened to WABC. You could pick up all those stations and so you could hear the big city in a medium or small town, you could, you could be exposed to the big city style of radio. So you aspired to that. Uh, and that's, that, that changed a little bit when FM became uh, a big thing because FM obviously doesn't have that, that reach. And then it got to the point where after that, um, if you were really a radio geek, uh, you'd, you'd end up having uh, people record on cassette just the DJs talking in between, not the songs, but just in between the songs. And they were called air checks. And, um, and you'd end up, uh, you know, swapping cassettes with friends all around the country going, you know, hey, do you have, do you have, do you have any, uh, you know, WABC air checks that, that I can listen to? And they'd copy them off and send them to you so you could hear what those, what those stations sounded like. Um, mm -hmm. If you could, if you couldn't pick up the FM signal. Um, so it was, and then that was a real, uh, 
a real honor for me when I was working in New York at HOT um, because the, the people would call from St. Louis and say, hey, you know, I heard, I heard that, that promo or that sweeper you did. Where'd you get that particular sound? Or where did that, how'd you do this? And I was like, I was amazed and kind of flabbergasted that anybody was even, you know, anybody outside of New York was listening to what we were doing. It was, uh, it was a little, put a little bit of pressure on you. Yeah, and that leads me to my next question. How did the famous top of the hour ID for Hot 97 come about, which goes from the top, 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 top of the Empire State Building, WQHT, New York, Hot 97? I, I, I actually, um, there is a fun story to that. Um, there, the, the gentleman that was the, the announcer, the voice of, those, of all the IDs for Hot 97 was a guy named Chuck Riley who I grew up listening to because he was actually from Indianapolis also. Um, and uh, big, huge, wonderful, big, booming uh, bass voice. And we got, a, uh, we got a recording in from him. He was in LA at the time and recorded from the top of the Empire State Building. I, I, believe it or not, at the time, it was from the top of the World Trade Center. We hadn't moved our transmitter yet. And um, the tape came in. And my boss, Joe Sokolowitz, who was uh, just a crazy creative genius as a boss, he was great to work for. And he said, hey, I what I'm, I'm hearing in my head, I'm hearing this thing, I want it to sound like it's coming from the top of the building. I want, I want it to project from the top. And um, so I went back, I had a home, I've, I've always had a home studio, even if, when I've, if I worked for a radio station, I always wanted a kind of a creative lab that I could play in by myself. So I took the tape home to my, my studio at home and um, I will admit that at the time I, I, I would, uh, I, I like to end the day with a rum and Coke. So I had a couple of rum and Cokes and was feeling pretty good. So I loaded this into the sampler, which is a, 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 a musical instrument at the time that um, everybody's probably familiar with now, but it, it was pretty new at the time where you could stutter and you could do things with things. And so um, I just started playing around. And I, 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 that night, it was, it was in one night, I, I kind of visualized that this signal was going from the top, 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 and kind of going up and out. So I, I did the pitch shift up and I did a few other effects like that. And it was a pretty, pretty active idea, I guess active is the way to put it. I, I went in the next morning and um, uh, the corporate technical engineer for the whole corporation was in town. And Joel and I went into the production studio and, um, and Terry walked in behind us and I played it for my boss, I played it for Joel. And Terry interrupted everything and just went terribly overproduced. It'll burn out in a, in a, in a couple of days. It's it's too it's too much. And Joe goes, no, I think it's I think I like it. Let's try it. Um, we laugh about it because I, I, years later Terry Terry came by again and, I, and and he goes, what are you doing, Rick? And I go, ah, just sitting around overproducing was my always my joke to him because that ID ran for close to I think eight years. It, it was it ran every hour on the hour. Um, so it, it didn't burn out. It, uh, it, people loved it. People enjoyed it. And uh, it kind of developed a, a reputation of its own, a life of its own. Right. It definitely was and still is one of the premier IDs for us radio geeks, just like how if you went up the dial to Z100 and heard their flamethrower package from Absolutely. Jams, it's that calling card to let you know, hey, this is our station. And, and when I got to New York, J.R. Nelson was the production director at, uh, at Z100, and then later Dave Fox came on board. And we were absolutely competitive. But at the same time, Dave Fox is, to this day, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I feel bad that we haven't talked for a while, but um, great friend. I mean, a great guy, wonderful person. I never felt any... Uh, the, the, the competition was actually... For me, at least, I can't speak for him, but for me, it it, it was it was very positive competition where I didn't want to, to, I didn't wish him any harm or any bad luck. I just wanted to be as good as he was or try to be a little bit better every time. So it was always it was it was a great positive competition in that market that I think brought everybody's um, quality up. Yeah, because the radio at that time in the Big Apple was serious. You had Hot 97, you had Z100, you had WPLJ, you had 107.5 WBLS, and at the time, 98.7 KISS. And they were all battling for that top spot in New York. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, every listener was important. And I, and I, it was, it was a time when, um, and, and I, I think you kind of pointed it out. If you grew up in that time listening to one of those stations in New York, you you really felt loyalty to, to those stations. It wasn't as if you were like, I don't care what I'm listening to. I'll just dial around. You were, you were a fan, a liberal people that were serious fans of, of Z100. And they, they were, you know, they were anti hot 97 or anti hot 103. And there were, Hot 103 fans that, that thought Z100 was terrible. So there was there was some interesting listener loyalty. And we tried very hard to develop that. Mm. And for those that don't know, originally Hot 97 was on the 103 dial and it was Hot 103. And then they later ended up moving up down the dial to Hot 97 where they still are to this day. Do you know the reason why the switch behind going from 103 to 97? Yep. Um, at least th this is, as I remember it, um, my memory is, I don't know about my how good my memory is, but what it was, was uh, Hot 103 was owned by a company called MS Broadcasting. And uh, the, the 97 frequency was WYNY, which was uh, an NBC owned radio station. And MS actually bought the NBC or a couple of the NBC stations, if I remember right. And at the time, um, the 103 frequency was from the World Trade Center. This was before 9-11. And so the transmitter was down on the World Trade Center and the 97 frequency was on uh, the Empire State Building. And the signal from, from the Southern part of, of Manhattan had, a, there, there's a, a problem with FM in big cities where you get between buildings and that sort of thing where the signal kind of, kind of flakes out a little bit. And so the 103 frequency was not as well received or wasn't as clear in the city as it was in the suburbs. And the 97 frequency was great in the city and, and was, was a little weaker in the burbs. And what Emmis was smart enough to do is when they had both frequencies, they realized hot 103 or the hot format was very city oriented, was, was, was you know, more for, the, for the, the, the Manhattan crowd. So they wanted a better signal that would cover the city better. And the country station on 97 was, would have been, or, and was just fine on the 103 frequency that, uh, because they, they got more suburban listeners. So it was a business decision to do the flip. Um, and, and it was an interesting, it was a fun time. They hired Vanna White to come in and, and spin the wheel for the frequency so that we landed on a different frequency. Uh, we made a big party out of it. But for me, it was kind of interesting. It was a lot of, a lot of work specifically for me because every single produced sweeper and imaging piece that I had done for 103 had to be redone and changed to Hot 97 from 103, you know, Hot 103 to Hot 97. So there was a lot of late nights before that switch for me in the Turn studio. Turning to midnight changing. oil. Yeah, yeah. In fact, a lot of my buddies, Bill Schultz was was uh, another production person at Hot, who's a great guy, and um, and he uh, he 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 was excited because he was able to finish all his work and went to the big party uh, for the switch. And when the switch happened, I was still in my studio at the radio station, hurrying to try to catch up to get some things finished. So I never even got to 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 take part in the in the party time of that that event. Man, you never got to see Vanna White turn the nope, board nope. and all of that good stuff. I, I just, just saw the pictures. I, I didn't get to party. Man, 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 you missed out. Now, this was back before I want to switch a little bit, talk about how before TV sounds were in stereo, they're primarily in mono. And I noticed that a lot of the local radio stations and especially MTV in its early years, once everything became more stereo that we used to do FM stereo hookups. Can you explain how that worked? Um, well, I mean, we, we were, one of the things that I really enjoyed about hot was we did a lot of what they used to call remotes. Um, they still call them remotes, but um, it was, uh, we, we, we would go to different clubs and broadcast live from the clubs and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we would do promotions with MTV on other things. Um, so there was a lot of interaction um, between between the different um, uh, different facilities or, or different ways to get the word out there. There was a lot of uh, kind of cooperation between things like MTV or t different TV stations. Um, that was that was that was fun. It really was. So uh, and 
I, I think when we produce things, we always, I didn't really, at least personally, I didn't, I didn't really ever think about the fact that um, a lot of their material was in mono. I would kind of produce it um, in, uh, in as much fun and excitement in stereo as I could, because stereo added that excitement. The one thing you did have to be careful about, and it's something from a technical standpoint that a lot of people don't really realize is um, the, the, the FM signal, when you're listening in a car or you're listening on, uh, you're not streaming it if you're listening to it through a terrestrial transmission, as the signal gets weaker, it actually blends the channels more towards mono. You'd get less left and right. So you blend in towards mono. And as an audio engineer, um, one of the things uh, uh, that I make sure I, I teach the students that I have in my classes for audio is you need to listen to that signal in mono for what they call a phase to make sure it's phase compatible. Because what happens is if you have two wavelengths of sound that are just slightly different from each other, but the same sound mixed to mono, they can cancel each other out. And so you can have this beautiful, beautiful stereo spread in stereo um, headphones. But if all of a sudden somebody changes it to mono, it, it almost goes away. So one of the things that, that as a, from a technical standpoint, as a producer back in those days, I was, uh, um, one of the things I, I was very aware of was making sure my production would sound as good in mono uh, as it did in stereo, because uh, oftentimes it, it would it would get blended. Now is there a difference in terms of sound? Let's say if you're listening to a radio station on FM, and then you have one that's an AM stereo. You know, AM stereo for me never in my career never really affected me because I don't I didn't, I never worked for an AM stereo station. It never took off very very much. Um, I don't think, I, I don't know. Did you ever have a car or, or anything that had AM stereo in it? No, by the time I came of age to remember radio, AM stereo and AM was pretty much talk sports. Oh, yeah, it was, it was, it was talk, talk radio. So it was all mono. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, that was a last attempt. This, the AM stereo was kind of a last attempt to keep uh, AM playing music. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't carry enough. FM, FM was just too clean and, 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 uh, and a better signal, a better sound. So people kind of abandoned the AM for music. So that's pretty much why a lot of the music formats went from AM to FM because the sound quality on FM was a lot better because at yeah. that time, before everybody switched over to FM, FM was pretty much for experimental music, AOR, deep cuts. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in fact, before before even they got to uh, experimental music, a lot of it was the beautiful music, just the, the elevator music, the, the music you'd hear, you know, with, with, with violins and, and that kind of thing. That was, that was, there weren't many FM radios out there in the very beginning, AM was the thing. And it wasn't until some of these alternative stations, not alternative, but album stations and the freeform stations started really taking off and going after a younger audience that the FM radio started to sell. Yeah, because I believe before uh, Z100 came on the air, it was originally a beautiful music format before they split, flipped yeah. the top 40. Yeah, and I, and I think two, two, two formats before Hot 97, if I remember right, uh, WAPP was album, but before that, I think it was a beautiful music station on the 103 frequency too. Mm -hmm. Now, being from the Hoosier State, are you familiar with WOWO? Absolutely. That's another 500... You know, or a fifty thousand watt blowtorch. Um, yeah, that, and but which was funny because that was in Fort Wayne, which was not exactly a large city, but that radio station blanketed the entire Midwest with its signal. Yeah, legendary station for their lineup from the fire escape from the Big Red Barn, or infamously, they set off the EBS test back in, I believe it was the early 70s, somebody had submitted the wrong message for the EBS test, emergency broadcast system, and everybody went into panic. And yeah, everybody thought, uh-oh, it's the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So it, uh, it, in fact, it was, it was a sad day when, when things started changing in the, in the, with, with the uh, regulations and things, because I remember when, uh, when I, I heard that 
that the some that the West I think Westinghouse owned W O W O. Yeah, Group and w. They were selling it, and then somebody decided that they would take some money and accept the fact that they'd go to a lower signal at night or something like that. So they they weren't the fifty thousand watts anymore. Um, so it was that was kind of sad. Yeah. Now the funny thing about radio stations is that depending on where you are, your signal could be blasting from let's say a market that's. 30, 40 miles out, because I had a chance to interview Cy Young, who was a personality at WQOK, K97.5, in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was telling me that when K97 first came on the air, they were coming in so strong that you could hear them in Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and that's a totally different market, through that station's monitors. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well... If, if you want to have some fun sometime, do some research and ask some people, interview some people about WLW in Cincinnati. Um, it was one of the few stations, well, the only station, it was licensed during World War II. They built a 500,000 watt transmitter, not 50,000. That was their regular signal, but they were licensed to go in an emergency up to 500,000 watts because it was during the wartime. And when they tested that, um, because the, you, you have to understand the, the difference between AM, which is amplitude modulation, and FM, which is frequency modulation, the two different sciences of broadcast. But the amplitude modulation can actually resonate things. Um, so farmers' tin roofs uh, around, you know, miles away from the transmitter when they went to 500,000 watts without a radio, not even a radio, the roofs would resonate and you could hear the music uh, or the, the announcer of, of WLW just because it was a piece of metal and people said they were picking it up on their fillings in their teeth. That's, that's crazy. You lose it. Where are you listening from? I'm listening from the roof. You got a yeah. transistor. Like, no, about having, I'm literally listening, yeah. listening from the roof. Or we're talking about having voices in your head. You know, if your, if your fillings were picking up the station, it's like, well, those poor people could not turn it off. You know, mm -hmm. now also before automation, like you mentioned earlier, live bodies were in the studio 24 seven, but if you were lucky at a big market or you could afford it, if you had extra money lying around, you would have what was called a cart carousel where you would have all your carts for your overnight hours loaded up. And then if you are the engineer, you hope and pray that these carts work. So that way you're not getting a call saying, uh, we need you to come down to the station cart carousel. One just went down. When, when I was working at the, uh, at, at the local station, when I was going to college, uh, this was in Bloomington, Indiana, at Indiana University. The, the station I was working for was an AM and an FM. The FM had uh, automated country format. And I was live uh, many times. I did the overnight shift um, on the AM. And that was the same thing. The, the announcer tape would get out of sync every once in a while with the songs. And so this, this announcer would go, you know, here's Merle Haggard singing. And then all of a sudden Dolly Parton would be playing in the background. And I wouldn't even, you know, I, I didn't listen to the station because I was working on my station. And then you'd get a phone call from the listener on the FM going, it's all messed up. And you'd have to run in there and, and reset things while, uh, while, while your music was playing. You know, it's like, you got three minutes during this song to run in and fix the other radio station. Mm -hmm. So also during this time too, did you have to have an FCC license or did they abolish the FCC test? Over on the wall, right over there is my federal communication license, which was a technically called a third class radio telephone operators license. And back then, yes, if you were running the radio station, if you were if you were on uh, if you were on the air, most of the time, if there was not a technical engineer present, you had to take the transmitter readings. You had to look and make sure all the meters were were correct. Um, and if there were some situations where you had where people were required to have what was called a first class license, uh, that was a lot harder to get. Third, the third class license was a little easier. But I remember studying, studying, and studying, and, and having to take it at the FCC office in Chicago. I had to drive up to Chicago and take the test in order to operate the radio station. But yeah, so, it's still it's still over on the wall. Yeah, it's an achievement because some of the various people that I spoken with that they had to take the FCC test said that it was like the bar exam for radio, where if you passed it, it on the first try, consider yourself a genius. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was not an easy test to pass. You had to do a lot of a lot of there's there a lot of math and technical stuff involved because it was all about transmitters and, and electric electricity and electronics. Now, were there some exemptions to where if you met XXX criteria that you would be exempt from having to take the test and you would just automatically get it? 
I, you know what? I don't, I'm not sure about that. I don't think so. I think it was, I think it was a requirement. You had, you had to have one. Um, and, and I remember that it was, it was serious business because you had to take the transmitter logs and you had to sign them and, and, and make track, you know, keep track of the, of the different technical numbers that were happening, uh, the readings they used to call them. And there were times when a FCC inspector without any notice would stop into your radio station saying, let me see your, let me see your transmitter logs. And if you'd forgotten to take that reading, it's like, oh, you know, you were fined. You get, you, you got a fine. And so it was, it was, uh, it was serious business. You had to keep track of it. Yeah. Trust me. I worked in small market radio and I still had to do the transmitter log readings. And in addition to run your locally produced high school, college games on your AM, make sure that your local and national spots were ran. And even in the AM studio, we had good old spin pots with the A&P switch in the middle. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) I remember those days. Yeah, because carts, I mean, you really had to be delicate with carts. You couldn't just jam them in the machine because your cart could warble, tape could get ate up on air, and you were pretty much out of luck because the sales rep would come to you be like, why is Jimmy's Magic Shop spot is not playing? You're costing me commission. Yeah, yeah. You're, cost, you're costing the station money, and that, that, that's never a good thing. That, that's not good. That's not a good way to keep your job long term, you know. No, because that is the heartbeat of radio. For those of you that do not know, commission, especially if you can get a nightclub or a car dealership, ones that's going to spend money monthly and constantly, you're going to make a nice commission. Uh, and and that's I mean, and that's the way the owner of the radio station makes their money. I mean, the commercials. You know, a lot of people go, "Oh, I hate commercials," and you know, I wish there weren't any commercials. And and yet. That's why the music's free on radio. Um, that's why you're not, you're not paying a, you know you're not paying a monthly subscription fee like you would with Spotify or, or Pandora. Um, it's free um, because of the commercials. The commercials are where it pays for you to listen to the music for free. Mm-hmm. Now, does the imaging of stations change once there's a change in format? Because you know, with Hot 97, it was I want to say maybe around 93 or 94, correct me if I'm wrong, where they they started to go more hip hop oriented and go away from more dance. And that was when Steve Smith came in to do consultant work. Yep, and and that, I mean, and that was just an adaption of of style on my part, um, which everybody, you know, everybody at the station changed changed their, their focus because it's who we were talking to. We were talking to a different audience while trying to keep as, as broad an audience as possible. But yeah, I mean, I, then, then we were using, I mean, you know, it was like Funkmaster Flex came in and uh, he would, you know, he would create certain tracks that we would use on the promotions. And, um, you know, you had Spinderella in there from, from Salt and Pepper doing a lot of stuff. Um, it, it, it definitely, I mean, and Steve Smith had a, had a ear for hip hop. Um, he and I would meet every morning, just, he'd meet with everybody, but for, for imaging the radio station, he would have an idea in his head almost every morning of what he wanted to do that day to, to keep the image of the radio station as, as um, street as possible. Mm, and with having a street approach, you want to target your target demo, but have a broad enough appeal to where it can be appeasing to advertisers because advertisers love to look at, well, back in those days, diaries. Now it'll be the portable people meter to make sure what's your numbers looking like? What's your QM? What's your TSL to make sure that I'm going to put my money in the right place to maximize my dollars? Well, and there, and there was actually, I mean, there was one of the things that we had to deal with was, and, and it's it's unfortunate, and it sounds so strange, based on how our how we think socially today. But back then, a lot of the advertisers, um, I mean, it was it was for lack of a better term, it was racist. They were like, well, no, we don't really we don't really want that hip hop crowd. They don't spend money, or you know, they, they're we 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 don't want to advertise to them, and um, they learned fairly quickly that that's total BS that, you know, that, you know, everybody's got the money. And if you get enough listeners, it's, it's absolutely a viable format, but it, there was, there was some resistance for a while in the radio industry of, of, uh, of the hip, old hip hop um, format because of, you know, it's like, you know, no, it's, it's, you know, we want those 18 to 24 year old, 24 year old 
white kids or whatever. And, and um, it's weird to even, I, I feel uncomfortable even saying that now because it just, it, it's like, how the hell could that have actually been true back then? But it, it, it was, I mean, it, it uh, unfortunately was, was a period where American business thought that way. Yeah, because if you look at the higher ups, you see young urban African-American male, females, and this music that's infiltrating the suburbs, you're saying, oh, this is it's getting too dark outside, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and which which was total BS. I mean, it was like, uh, it, was, it, it, it was frustrating. It was frustrating to be uh, subjected to that attitude. And, and I mean, and I'll be the first person to go, you know, and, and I'm, I, I'm obviously a white guy right. and, and I, I was pissed off about it. So I can't even imagine, you know, what, what my fellow employees right. felt that were subjected to that because of the color of their skin. Yeah, because you want the music of the streets, but you want the presentation like a Z100 or WPLJ. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to appeal to everybody, but at the same time, hip hop had to be authentic. I mean, it was a street, it came from the streets and it was, it. the last thing we wanted to do was water it down and, and make it white bread. We wanted to keep that legitimacy to it, um, which, which luckily, we had so much help from the, the hip hop community at that point. Um, th we were really supported by the artists um, and the community. Um, and, and that kind of taught us and gave us a guidance in what we wanted to do. And Steve Smith was good at that. Steve, Steve read the room very, very well. Right, because if you take a look at back before hip hop became mainstream, a lot of AM radio stations were playing underground hip hop R&B like out in California, 1580, K-Day, or in Tucson, yeah. Arizona, Power 1490, which was dance, hybrid oriented. And it was where a lot of these companies said, hmm, we want to try this, but we're going to err on the side of caution because like we said, it was some veil coded language of let's not dip our toe all the way in the water, so to yep. speak. But that's one of the things where I have a lot of respect for MS Broadcasting um, and, and their, their corporate program director at the time was uh, Rick Cummings. And Rick just, I mean, he, he wouldn't put up with that kind of thought. Um, and he, he put Power 106 on the air in LA as a hip hop radio station um, and, and, and evolved it from the, from the dance to the, to the hip hop. And then, and then uh, he helped uh, the, the transition in New York from, uh, from the, the dance um, format to hip hop. And he, he, he was a trailblazer. I mean, he, he, he was colorblind, which I, I thought was really an awesome, he's, he is an awesome human being. He's, he's a really cool dude. Now, how are you able to transition your ear for sound and audio on the recording side, like when you're mixing and mastering and notice like, hey, you may need to turn the EQ down and this in order to have your record sound perfectly clear? That's an art. I mean, it's, it's something that, that I, I, to this day, I continue to craft and, and, and hone that art because it's... Um, I mean, there, there are so many, and the technology today is so amazing that you can, you can use. I mean, the, the, the power of a, of, of a digital recorder that you have on your laptop today is far beyond what we had in a, in a huge recording studio um, back in the day. So the, the, the talent today, it's kind of like back in the day when the, when the word processor and the computer word, you know, uh, computer came in with, for, for uh, doing word processing. Um, and replace the typewriter. Same kind of thing. Just because you can do it faster and more creatively and better on a word processor than you could on a typewriter doesn't make you a better writer. Um, and it's the same thing with musicians. Just because we have this incredible new technology doesn't make you a better musician or a better recording engineer. Um, and, and so there is still, still an art and a craft to it that, that I continue to want to learn. And, and one of the cool things is I'm, I'm privileged enough. I'm an instructor. I, I, besides running my own sound design company, I, I'm an instructor at a place called the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. And I get to work with really talented students who really want to learn uh, the music business as far as music engineering and recording. And um, it, it's, it's awesome 
to watch some of these people go from where they, when they come into the state of uh, the school to what they learn and how they can craft a song and you know take a kick drum and mix it with a with a bass uh, you know a bass synth line and then add some guitar in there or or some some you know beats whatever and and cr and create a great piece of music. Um, they have access to a huge recording, several huge recording studios at the school, but they also have their laptops and they can do things on their laptops that um, that are absolutely hit quality. Right. Uh, it, and so it's crafting. It really is. You're right. And how big of a game changer for the music industry was when MIDI came out? Personally, it changed my life because I'm I would. As far as music, uh, being a musician, I was a trumpet player and a trumpet player only plays one note at a time. So, um, you know, you don't play the chord. You just play one note of the chord as a trumpet player because the other trumpet plays the other note, that kind of thing. So I never really learned composition and, and I wasn't really that good at percussion. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have much rhythm. Uh, when MIDI came out, it was the first time that you were able to record a drum loop um, and then go, no, nope, yeah, I'm going to move that snare drum just a little bit here and go back and you could, you could, you could adjust things or what they used to call step recording. You could go in and, and say, I want the kick on one, two, three, and four. I want the snare on two and four, whatever. Um, and you could do that. So for me, that was the first time I was able to take the sounds that I heard in my head, the rhythms that I heard in my head, and I could create them finally. It was like, it was a, it was such a, a wonderful outlet for me. Um, and so when MIDI came around, um, I, I, just, I jumped on that bandwagon incredibly quickly because it was just uh, really fun. In fact, I've got my, one of my Roland um, uh, you know, MIDI recorders still in a case back in the studio back there uh, that hasn't seen the light of day for probably 25 years. Um, but that's what I started. You know, I started on these, these um, MIDI recorders that were huge boxes, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but one instrument that really changed the game was the Moog synthesizer. Now, if you go to my neck of the woods, North Carolina in Asheville, Asheville. there's a museum dedicated to Mr. Moog where yep, the synthesizer that is the, that is the, that is the museum, uh, the, the Moogseum in, uh, oh. in Asheville. In fact, they're really active in, um, in, in helping uh, schools with music programs and things like that. I, I have no idea if you knew this or not, but I'm actually on the board of advisors of the Bob Moe Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, that's something I'm very passionate about. And I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, but right above my finger right there, that, that box right there, mm -hmm. that is a Moog modular synthesizer from the early days. Wow. Uh, that's one of the original Moog synthesizers. And uh, I am, I am a, in, it, that was, the synthesizer was one of the things that got me incredibly involved in this business because it could make sounds that got your attention. Remember I said earlier how I loved looking for sounds that got the listeners attention without interfering with the flow of the radio station and synthesizers back then were the one thing that you know, it was a new sound. It was incredibly fun to do. And so that was something that uh, I was really excited to, to, uh, to get involved in. Right. Um, and one of the things, yeah, and one of the things that I found amazing with the early days of hip hop was that they took what they had and made do because a lot of those early Marley Mall, Teddy Riley records were do it yourself. They would do it in a home studio and then maybe take it to a big studio like a Chung King Power Play hit factory to get it mastered and have that studio quality. But you can still hear that raw do it yourself aesthetic. Or they, I mean, uh, uh, or they would, or they would record everything in MIDI, and they would bring their synthesizers and their MIDI tracks to that studio, that big, you know, expensive studio. But they would do all the MIDI work and do all the composition and do all the pre preparation um, at home, and then bring it in there. Yeah, it was. It it opened up the music industry to so many people that would not have had the economic means to hire a big, expensive, hourly rate studio. Yeah, because prior to machines taking over, a lot of studios would have in-house musicians or you would have somebody freelance say, hey, so-and-so is having a session down at blah, 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 go play horns for them. But it seemed like when America was taking on the machines, like at the start of the late 70s, early 80s with disco, Europe was already on it before it caught on over here in the States. Yes, yep, that... that that is true. The States was a little, uh, people in the beginning were a little scared that the synthesizer would replace musicians, which is not what happened at all. 
it just it was another another color to the palette when you're painting you know that kind of thing but people were afraid like oh no this is going to put all the, the the violinists out of business you know there won't no one will play the piano anymore um and that didn't happen it was just it, it added a different sound and different possibilities right endless possibilities because when you heard a lot of those records coming out of europe like the donna summer records that were produced by Giorgio Moroder, oh craft work yeah um, what, one of the, one of the, the, you know, Giorgio Moroder is, is to me an amazing human being. I still remember the first time, um, you know, I heard, I feel love. Um, and it was just like, oh, that, that arpeggiated line, it's like blew my mind. Uh, and then there's another, um, uh, band out there. That's not really a band. It's actually one person, but it's called, uh, Synergy. Um, and, um, that was that was some great the beginning of electronic music and and really well crafted synthesizer music and that turned out to be I didn't know this at the time until I was at a uh, uh, I was at a meeting in New Jersey and the guy sitting next to me was a guy named Larry Fast and we started talking and it turns out he was Synergy and I told him I go dude your music was is is the reason why I you know I got into that that pulsing uh, percussive uh, you know, music that I'm producing for the radio station, that kind of stuff. So um, it's, it, it, it was an amazing subculture that, that influenced, that ended up influencing uh, every corner of music. Yeah. Then you had the talk box and later, you know, auto tune and just taking forms of technology, adding it to the collage of great music. And people are just saying, we, we're going to take technology, not fear it, but embrace it. Right, exactly. And once once people started once once the really creative people started do, embracing it and doing that and uh, and and coming forward and climbing over the the doubters, um, it, it I mean music really changed when you go back and listen to it. I mean, and and some people you know uh, some people can make fun of or or put down the the technological part of that music, um, the producer heavy side of that. But it expanded. It expanded. Uh, it expanded the, the what we listened to quite a bit. Mm. Um, I still have some metalhead friends, you know, that are that are rock and rollers. They'd say, "Oh man, it's not this kind of stuff you're into ruined music." It's like, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it only enhances. So, in your opinion, good or bad, the telecom of '96. How did that change radio and the landscape of broadcasting? Good or bad? Broke my heart. Um, I. I I, I, I've, I've accepted it. It is what it is. You can't fight it. it. I mean, it, you know, you can't swim upstream forever, but I think it really, it changed radio drastically. And um, I, I think it, it took away from locality, the local side of radio up until that time. I think the, the DJs at a local radio station were kind of like local, local celebrities. And that went away. Um, and, and then you also had, I mean, I'm growing up at, at, at where I was growing up, we probably had eight different people that owned different radio stations and they all, it was a friendly competition, but they all made better radio because they were all fighting against each other. Everybody was trying to do something better. And program directors, the bosses, the creative bosses at these radio stations would always try something interesting and new to stand out. And I think when we got into this big corporate radio, um, environment for a while. I think it's, it's changing um, and I think it will continue to change. But, um, but for a while, it actually, the opposite happened. They wanted to keep their heads down and not cause any excitement or, or get noticed because I don't want to get fired kind of thing. So you had people doing somewhat mediocre radio for a while just because they didn't want to do anything different and everything started to sound the same. Uh, you didn't develop any new talent, any personalities. You didn't have a Broadway Bill Lee or a Dr. Dre and, 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 you know, and Ed Lover because it was, no, you know, we either have one superstar that's on all these different markets, syndicated or networked, or just shut up and play the music um, and don't talk very much. And so you lost that hometown hero uh, for that for a while. Um, it's interesting because I've been out of the the day-to-day the, the -day radio business for a while now. And so I work with a lot of the large corporations, um, the, the owners of the, the big chains, and um, they're trying desperately to be as creative as they can. 
and and I think they're they've tried different things. Some things have failed. Some things have gotten you know done well. But um, but I miss I miss the people that are have to work that. We talked about the overnight shift. You know, we talked about that late night shift. That was a place for people to make mistakes because there weren't that many listeners, and it didn't matter. You know, you put somebody on that shift, and they could they could grow. They could they could mold their personality and learn to be a good air personality. And you, there's not that many chances for that anymore. It's more difficult for someone to break into the business, make enough money to earn a living, um, and and then stand out enough to continue to grow. Um, so that's that's going to continue to. Um, to affect the radio industry, I think. You know, when you add in podcasts and add in streaming, um, you add in, you know, uh, Spotify and Pandora and that sort of thing where, I mean, you know, uh, if I'm willing to spend a few dollars a month, uh, you know, somebody can listen to the, to the radio playing their own songs without any commercials. Um, and that's hard to compete against. That's hard for radio to compete against. So yeah. it is a changing world. Yeah, it is because a lot of kids now don't know the concept of waiting on the radio station to play your song maybe 15 minutes after you heard it or being the 97th caller to win tickets to go see so-and-so or DJ so-and-so is going to be at this burger joint broadcasting live from 10 to 2. And if we spot your bumper sticker, have a chance to win X amount of dollars. It, yeah. they, you just don't have that sense of familiarity and fun because to me the best thing about radio back when I was listening to it is knowing that so-and-so is going to be doing a remote B I get a call through to the radio station for a request show and I get to take myself off the radio making the request which I've done three times and then getting seen with that station's whether it's a bumper sticker a t-shirt a hat something that says I love this station and I feel that I'm a part of it. And it made you, we talked, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like having the listener be a part of the family. And that's what made people be part of the family of that radio station was being involved like that. It's like, oh my gosh, I got through and I was calling 97. And oh, you know, it's like what, and most of the time they didn't even know what they won. They just were happy to, to, to be the winner. And that's, that was excitement. And that was interesting. And that we've lost that a little bit. Um, and, and in fact, the importance of radio has shifted a little bit. I, I, I've got a friend of mine who's a a boss at a major radio chain of you know a group of radio stations, and he, I, I was talking to him, and his teenage son doesn't even own a radio, and and that's his you know his dad's business is radio, and this kid lives in a world where where radio to him is not important, and that saddens me a little bit because I think radio has its place. Um, you know, I was, I was at, um, I was on the road in my, my truck last year and a big storm popped up out of nowhere. And um, I was listening to the radio and I was sad that I tuned around to a whole bunch of different radio stations uh, and none of them were talking about the storm. They were all pre-recorded, And so there was no local. In fact, this sounds so weird to me being a radio, huge radio fan, but I actually tuned to Sirius XM's weather channel and they had information about Phoenix, Arizona weather um, when none of the local radio stations did. And that, that's the thing that we need to fight. And, and that, that, that's, we need to get back to, um, to being that local source of entertainment. Um, but it's, it's splintered. It's never going to be the back the way it was. I mean, you know, when I grew up, there were, Usually in whatever city you lived in, there were three TV stations. That was it. You know, I mean, that's that's what you had your choice choice of the three networks. Um, and then all of a sudden cable happened and you had all this different programming that changed television or that changed, you know, the video industry. And that's what happened to radio. Um, this the audio delivery system has changed drastically. You've got streaming. You've got um, you've got a million songs on your phone if you really want to listen to that. Um, so uh, it, it's it's going to continue um, to change and adapt uh, if we want to keep keep it alive, and, yeah. and and it'll it'll stay. I mean, it's I'm I'm a believer. It's not in no way no way is this beautiful thing we've got going to die. It's going to evolve. Right, like how when MTV first debuted, they said video killed the radio star. Shout out to the Buggles, and now podcasting and streaming killed the radio star because if 
you and I both know being in the broadcasting business about voice tracking and how they want to pay this one person to voice track for maybe four or five plus stations and the markets for whatever they own. And you lose that sense of regionality where DC radio is different from LA radio, Raleigh, North Carolina radio is different from Miami radio, where now is you have one corporate PD that's in charge of one particular format. And then they deliver a playlist to all their stations say, you guys are going to play this. The only thing that's going to be localized be liners and news and it really sucks to be a small market station now because you can't get talent to go cut their teeth in small market and you may be lucky to have two or three jocks and then you fill out the rest of your programming with syndication yeah and but and but that's not that's that's changes i mean it's it's the smarter large companies are adapting and understanding that that they need to develop local talent or or develop talent somehow and and then there's still Thank goodness, there's still some of the mom and pop owners out there that um, that are running live radio stations that are doing live and local, um, and it, it it pays off. It really does. Yeah, live and local is the best way to be. So tell us about Rick Allen Creative and what you got going on now. Well, I I, I when I left the day to day radio operation, I ended up launching a um, a. I talked about earlier the imaging service where it was a uh, that stations could pick that up and and I could earn money by having that on many many stations. Then I um, it's it's been a blast my my career I I'm I'm so blessed that that I that I've been able to do what I always loved to do and gotten paid for it. I'm always scared someone's going to point at me and go, "We're not going to pay you for this" because I'd still do it even if nobody paid me for it because I just I love it. Um, but I ended up. Um, getting into um, um, while still still being loyal and still doing a lot of radio work, um, I started recording sound effects collections for film and TV, um, and then I got into doing some sound work for games uh, and and that sort of thing, and uh, and can expand that side of my my uh, my revenue stream. My business um, is is basically. Um, Trying to get sounds put on network TV shows and movies and things like that, and uh, it's that that continues to be a lot of fun. It really is. It's when you when you get uh, told that one of your little sounds is is going to be you know in uh, in a show in Europe or or Australia or New Zealand, it's like oh cool, you know, um, that's a that's a thrill. So that's that's I, I still do I still do audio. Uh, I will always do audio. But now I'm going out and recording huge explosions out in the desert, and recording sound effects of, of gunfire and, and glass breaking and, and that sort of thing, and putting those collections together, making it available for, for other sound editors to use in their, their video production. Fun, 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 fun. Now, one more thing before we wrap. I We talked about the home studio. Now, I want to yeah. know in the beginning of the home studio, did you have all your equipment right there, or did you have to add piece by piece? Oh, um, piece by piece. They, although when I first did it, it's very much like today. If somebody said, "Okay, I'm going to buy a laptop and I'm going to get you know a, a, a digital workstation software program," um, I had to have something to, in the very beginning. So that was the first time, that first and only time I ever took out a loan to to uh, get equipment. And I put together a multi-track tape machine, a, a mastering tape machine, a mixing console, uh, and a few other pieces of gear was my first thing, and that was back. Um, that was that was back in the 80s um, and from then it was piece by piece by piece and I laugh because um, every once in a while I look around my studio and go wow I've got a lot of stuff <laughs> and, and it, it, it's but it, it's been over the years uh, that, that you know a little piece here a little piece there and all of a sudden it's and and thank goodness we live in a world where um, some of the older analog uh, vintage gear is sought after so it's I've, i laugh because most of the gear in my studio is vintage but, but i bought it shows you how old i am i bought it when it wasn't vintage i bought it when it was newer you know it's like it kind of grew into being the old vintage vintage gear but yeah what's it, old it, is new? it took quite a long time what's old is new because i believe jimmy jeremy terry lewis out in their flight time studio out west they pretty much got every piece of equipment they've used and they just refurbished it absolutely yeah i mean it's like it's um, when I look at some of the older gear that I got at a, at a 
you know, a fire sale price because at the time everybody was saying, hey, digital gear is the new thing. Everybody's getting rid of the analog gear. And um, I bought up quite a bit of that gear just because I like the sound of it. And then years later, you know, things that I got for a hundred dollars because nobody wanted them. Um, now, you know, they're, they're going for $5,000, $6,000. And I, the, the one time that I sold a couple of vintage pieces that I had because I thought I didn't need them anymore. One of my biggest regrets, because it's like, you know, it's like, no, I want that back. And it's, it's gone. My, I sold my baby, that kind of thing. So it's, um, it, I'm an equipment pack rat. So I, you know, I, if, if I bought it, I probably still have it. As long as you keep it in good condition and the more rare it is, the value goes up. It gets treated like baseball, basketball, sport, sporting cards where the value yeah. appreciates over time and the more significant it is, it is a one of a kind. Because if you look at the 808, originally before it skyrocketed in popularity, you could get them at bargain basement prices at a flea market or a yard sale. But Absolutely. now they're going to go for like thousands of dollars. Absolutely. No, totally agree with you on that one. Yeah. So hold on to your old stuff and never sell. And unless the price is right, a la Bob Barker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless the price is right now, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview and also plug your social media? I just, I tell you, I, I, I just want to, the, the, over the years, I can't tell you how many people have mentored me and, and given me advice uh, the, the, and, and the, the staff at hot 103 and hot 97, they're, they're still family. I haven't, you know, I haven't seen them physically for years now, but, uh, they're my, they're my brothers and sisters, man. I mean, they, we, we just, everything I did that I'm very proud of would have mean, meant nothing had we not had the support staff and all the, all the other people doing what they needed to do so well. Um, it was an incredible, incredible group of people. And it's, it's, I've been lucky. I, I, I say that about everybody that I've worked with in my career. I, I really haven't worked with anybody that I wouldn't want to work with again. The, I've, worked, I've, I've had the, 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 the wonderful chance to work with some great people. Um, and I feel very, very lucky about that. Um, and and it's, it, I've been able to build my business doing what I love to do. And if anybody cares, they want to check it out. It's... Um, it's rickallencreative.com is my website. Uh, and that's also my Instagram and my uh, Facebook and my YouTube channel is all, uh, you know, Rick Allen Creative, one word uh, at the end of all that stuff. So um, check it out. Uh, it, it, it's kind of fun to see what this crazy old man is doing these days to stay young. Um, you know, I'm still trying to stay relevant and hopefully I am. I'm having fun, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be having fun till I go out, man. <laughs> hey, if you gotta go out, go out with a bang. Check them out on all those platforms. You can catch this interview on audio and video platforms available on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Verbal, wherever you stream your podcast, and on my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash Beyond the Album Cover. Like, subscribe, follow, tell a friend, ladies and gentlemen. The Imogen Extraordinaire. If you've listened to games, radio, TV for the past four decades you know the man he's primarily behind the scenes but today on beyond the album cover he's in front of the camera so enjoy this ladies and gentlemen mr rick allen mr allen thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast sir thank you sir i appreciate you having me man now the problem